Once upon a time, on a sunny day, in a very lush and prosperous land known as the Pride Lands, there ruled a lion named Mufasa, whose throne was on a magnificent rock known as Pride Rock. This was a very special day, and it seemed that the entire kingdom turned up to celebrate it, including the weather. Zazu, the court jester, flew over everything to ensure that everything was in place and happening in a timely fashion. And he arrived in front of his master, Mufasa, and said, Sire, everyone is in place. The hyenas are not here. The giraffes are here and the elephants are here. We shall proceed, Mufasa said. So, the, uh, the, the kingdom's prophet, the baboon, the monkey Rafiki, comes and takes the newborn son of the king and blesses him and takes him to the edge of Pride Rock in front of the entire kingdom and there lifts this son up in front of everybody to say, this is the one through whom Mufasa's reign will continue. And all of the kingdom shouted for joy The elephants trumpeted their call and the gazelles did their little sounds and the monkeys cheered and jeered and the birds chirped. Everybody was excited for the new king who would take the kingdom over one day. Almost everybody, that is. Mufasa had a brother who was going to be the next king, you see. So he's therefore jealous of this little baby. I was going to be king until that little hairball was born. We learn that Mufasa's brother, Scar, is jealous. He wants to be king. Well, Simba grows up. And as all kids do, wake their parents up before they want to be up, before the sun's up. And says, Dad, Dad, you promised. So, Dad, Mufasa takes his son, Simba, the future king, to the very top of Pride Rock where they can see the entire kingdom. And he shows him the whole land and says, Simba, everything the light touches is our kingdom. Wow, everything? And I'm going to rule it one day? Everything, and you will be its king. Now, we, the Bible tells us, were made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, which he then said means we will have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock of the ground, and everything that creeps on the earth. We, in other words, were not servants of the gods, which everybody back then said, Israel realized we are partners of the God, the King, and he's allowing us to work with him in his creation. Wow. In other words, I'm a prince of the King. You're a princess of the King. We have partnership, and he gives to us gifts in order to do our part in his kingdom. But Simba, like you and I, is curious. We don't really know in our fallen condition exactly how to rule. And Simba wants to know about that little shadowy place out in the distance. 
To which Mufasa replies, that's beyond our borders. You must never go there. But why? I'll tell you one day. So, Mufasa takes Simba around the whole kingdom. And Simba is so excited about what happens, he has to tell his favorite uncle, Scar. Hey, Scar, guess what? I just saw the whole kingdom, and I'm going to rule it one day. Oh, goody. Scar is so delighted in this news. He comes up with this idea. Did your dad show you everything? Yeah, except for... Did he show you the elephant graveyard? The elephant what? Oops, I wasn't supposed to tell you. Promise me you'll never go there. Oh, fingers crossed. I promise, Uncle Scar. So he immediately goes and finds his girlfriend, Nala, who's getting a bath, and wants to go explore, as kids do. I heard about an elephant graveyard. Let's go. So the parents let them go, not knowing where they're going, as long as Zazu follows. Hornbill bird. And he gives them a lecture about how to be king. And they ditch him. And they stumble upon, that's right, the elephant graveyard. Which was mysterious and scary all at the same time. They were wowed to be there and also very much aware that this is dangerous. So Simba wants to find out what is inside the elephant's skull. Maybe its brains are still there. And just as he's going to look in... Out laugh three hideous hyenas with the most hideous laughter you've ever heard. If sound can have a scent, it stank. And they were excited, the hyenas were, because here was dinner just lying around. Free meal. And they quickly run, and the hyenas have to chase them. The hyenas are more experienced than Simba and Nala, his girlfriend. And so they are about to be caught when suddenly a loud, vicious roar rescues them. It's Mufasa to the rescue. He saves his son Simba from imminent death. Which Simba, of course, was elated with until he realized the growing silence on the walk home meant, I did something really bad. And then Mufasa took the chance to teach his son. Son, the great kings of the past looked down on us from those stars, and I may not be here with you in presence forever but I will always be with you, watching over you. Uncle Scar has a surprise for Simba the next day. His hyenas chase wildebeest into the gorge. Simba's trapped. He can't go anywhere. He's about to die. Dad comes and once again, for the second time, rescues him. But Dad this time had nobody to rescue him. And Scar found him pinned on the edge of the cliff and found his chance to say, long live the king, and let him fall to his death. Scar blames the whole episode on Simba. It's your fault. You shouldn't have been here. And Simba, out of shame and humiliation, runs away and abandons his post as the future king of the Pride Lands. When Adam and Eve sinned, It was shame that drove them to hide in the trees of the garden. It was shame that caused them to reluctantly come back to God when he called for them. 
This was the death. It was the death. It was the separation, the division of their partnership with God over the world. They give that up, and now we struggle in the world. We don't have much of that dominion we were promised. Simba runs. He almost dies. He runs and runs out of food and runs out of water and runs into Timon and Pumbaa. Who rescue him? Who decide he might become a great help later? If we can train this lion to be on our side, then we will be safe. And so they teach him how to eat bugs. They live in a jungle full of trees. It's almost like Simba's hiding in the trees. That sounds familiar. And there he learns the philosophy. As the philosophers come into life, Timon and Pumbaa are the philosophers. And they say, look, kid, I don't know what happened in your past. Forget about it. Look forward now to living here forever. Comfort is at your fingertips. Everything you want is here. It's called Hakuna Matata. It means no worries. It means no responsibilities. Okay. So he grows up. He be, he enters into manhood in this context. One night, they're looking at the stars, discussing what they are. And Simba's troubled because he remembers a certain conversation he had with his dad. And it reminds him he's supposed to be a king not a runaway. Well, the prophet gets wind, literally, of Simba's presence being alive, and he decides to go find him. Meanwhile, Simba reconnects with his girlfriend of the past, Nala, who is driven all the way to this jungle because there's no more food back home in the kingdom at Pride Rock. No more food. She tells Simba how bad it's gotten, Scar has taken over everything. He's let the hyenas in. They've eaten everything. Everything that's green is now ash. And the trees, which had fruit and flowers, are now just twigs. And the the rivers are now canyons of dry, empty nothing. And the blue sky with the golden sun is now smoke and ash and gray. Simba, it's death. We thought you were dead, but you're alive. You've got to come back and be king. Simba is not sure about this because he still thinks his dad's death is his fault and he cannot go back and face that. Nala's upset with him. You're not the Simba I used to know. You would have come back and fought Scar and become king. And so they fight and they divide. So Simba does what we all do when we have these moments. He binge watches whatever is in that pond below him. The monkey, however, the prophet, who at this point becomes that person in your life, that mentor, that pastor, that person God speaks through to you, comes and says, what are you doing? God said, Adam, where are you? Elijah, why are you here running away from the king and queen of the land? God comes to us and says, what are you doing? The monkey's bothering Simba in his pity party, so he asks, cut it out, man, who are you? And Rafiki the monkey asks, the question is, who are you? To which Simba can only say, I thought I knew. I'm not sure anymore. Rafiki then invites him to see who he is, revealing that I know you're Mufasa's boy. And Simba's confused. How do you know my dad? He died. So Rafiki brings him to a pond and shows him the pond and says, look in the pond. He's there. And Simba looks in and looks for a moment. No, 
that's not my father. That's just my reflection. Nope, wrong again, says Rafiki. Look harder. So this time, Simba looks a little deeper, beyond his own reflection. And there begins to emerge a vision of his father, Mufasa, who rises and says, Simba, you have forgotten me. No, Dad, how can I ever forget you? You've forgotten who you are and so have forgotten me. Simba, it's time to take your place as king. And Simba learns that if he's going to keep hiding from his calling, he is forgetting his father. We have these moments when we're running from what we're supposed to do. We lack the courage. We lack the confidence. We think we lack the skill or the ability to do that which God has called us to do, to take our place of rulership in his kingdom. And he sends people to say, no, you can do it. Look at the spirit of God within you. He's given you everything that you need to rise up and take your place in his kingdom and to serve him. And Simba gets it. He realizes I now remember who I am. I'm a child of the king. We are children of the king of kings. And so Simba returns. You can kind of see him in the fold of the page, but he's there. And he recognizes, well, doesn't recognize the land that he once knew. It's death. It's destruction. Because Scar has been ruling over everything so that I can be fed and do what I want. And as hyenas thrash the place, that's Simba's mother there at the bottom. And she's telling Scar, Scar, there is no more food. You guys have eaten everything. And Scar says, nonsense, you're just not looking hard enough. And then he hits her. This abusive tyrant who has power and abuses it. Much of what we've seen in the world of history. Power being used to only spread the curse of death. But Simba returns right then and says, it's time to leave Scar. And Scar recognizes him. And they duel for the throne. In which Simba eventually wins the duel. He re- Uh, connects with his mother, who's happy to see he's actually alive. And he ends up marrying his girlfriend, Nala. And he ends up becoming the king. And there's a moment when he has to climb up the hill, the rock, pride rock. And there he claims his place as king. And him and Nala have a baby. And the whole thing starts over. Because the baby is now the next future ruler. And Simba remembers My father has not left me because I've taken up what he's called me to do. So, we are now going to connect these dots for you. (laughs) God has asked, he's called, he's given each of us a task to rule in his kingdom. One of the problems we have with the gospel today is that we 
will preach it very well, and we will give the truth very well, and we will get up to a certain point in the gospel, and right before it gets to its climax, we stop. And then we preach it again. Jesus came to earth. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. Come accept him. And we preach it again. It's like, can you imagine reading your favorite book or watching your favorite movie? And just before the climax, the most important part of it, you stop and start over. It would be quite ridiculous. Yet we do this every time with the gospel. Yes, Jesus came. Yes, he died for our sins. Yes, he rose from the dead. He was raised by the Father to show that he indeed is his messenger through whom God is bringing life to the world. But he also was ascended. He, he ascended to the throne of God. And that, my friends, is the most important climax in the gospel narrative. In the kingdom of Rome and in the world back then, they had a word that we have today called gospel. Evangelion in the Greek. And that word has been found on the statues of Roman emperors in which the engraving says, Evangelion, we have a new king. That was the announcement that his messengers would make from city to city around the empire when a new king came in power. They had, they were told, it's good news. The last king is gone and we're not rulerless. We have a ruler and he has taken the throne. That was the good news. Crucifixion was so common in the Roman Empire, nobody would have considered that news. Hey, guess what, everyone? The gospel, someone was crucified. They would all look at you like, yeah, Billy's slave was crucified last week. Big deal. The good news, the news was that this Messiah came back from the dead and then ascended to the throne of God. That was news. And that was news that mattered to the world. That was something different. Wait a minute. You mean Caesar is not the only one to ascend a throne? You mean Caesar's not the only one who promises life and peace and prosperity and salvation in the world? That's news. That you don't have to follow that tyrant scar. You can follow this king, Jesus. And that's the news that converted the Roman Empire. That's the news that brought the early church to follow a crucified criminal who was risen and seated at the right hand of God named Jesus. That's the climax. The gospel is the enthronement of the Son of God. Yes, it's also his coming, his death, his resurrection. But the ultimate climax is that he is seated in power. So much so that I came upon this startling realization as I went through the New Testament. And I counted how many times Jesus is mentioned without the word Lord or Christ. Now, the Gospels say Jesus all the time and only say Christ a few times. But the New Testament letters, you can only count nine times when the name Jesus is used without Christ or Lord. What, what happened? I find it hard to believe, but there are a lot of people who think 
that Christ is Jesus's last name. Because we hear all the time, Jesus Christ. And sometimes those words go together so often, Lord Jesus Christ, that we forget what they meant when the people of that day heard those words. Lord means king. You only call people above you Lord. Jesus was, of course, his human name, and Christ. Well, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach, or Messiah, which was a word that meant anointed one, which was a phrase that was applied to the kings of Israel. David was the anointed one, and the prophets would come and anoint the successive kings. And here Jesus is called the Messiah. The Jews developed a tradition in which there would be another anointed one who would come, who would become our king. And Jesus comes and is that Messiah. So Paul, speaking to a Greek world, calls him not the Messiah, but the Christ. It's the same thing, the anointed one. Christ literally in our language, so if we're going from Hebrew Messiah to Greek Christ, we'd go to English, it would be king. Simple as that. Jesus the king is what Jesus Christ means. It is not his last name. It is his title, the title above all titles given in the world. Jesus the king. Now, now, after the gospels, after Jesus ascends to the throne of God, the dominant use of his name is Jesus the king. So, we're going to get to Ephesians, I promise. If you want to turn into a couple passages, you will look with me at Acts 1. So hold your place in Ephesians, Acts 1. You know this very well. Acts 1, verse 6. So, when they had come together, the newly risen Jesus and his disciples, they asked him, Lord, see, they get it. This guy rose from the dead. He's no longer just Jesus. He's Lord. <laughs> Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why does he need witnesses? Because every king who ascends a throne needs people to go out and tell the ends of the earth, which is his kingdom, the ends of the kingdom, there's a new king. Bring your allegiance to the king who will reign forever, not the kings that will fall. People who ally themselves with against a king, they die. <laughs> so you are my witnesses to go to the ends of the earth, which is my king. The entire world is my kingdom. And you're going to go tell people, I am the ascended Lord. And then, Acts 1-9. When he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. Oh my goodness. What an ascension. These are not just Caesar's steps made of marble. He's going up to the throne of heaven. Now, 
we're not as good at the Bible as, you know, Jews and people back then were. We read, he went up into the clouds and like, too bad they hit, a, hit him from sight. I would like to see where he landed. Um, they would have known immediately Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. This sheds light on what they saw. And if you want to just listen, that's fine, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw Daniel in his vision. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Which, by the way, is what Jesus referred to himself as over and over, the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God, the one on the throne, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So when Acts tells us that Jesus went up into the clouds He's saying, cue Daniel 7, go and look in your Bible. This is what's happening before your eyes, disciples. He is, he is coming before the ancient of days and being presented and given dominion and glory and a kingdom of all peoples forever and ever. Whoa. That is our Christ. So, Ephesians 2. And you, 2 verse 1, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked. Notice then, twice, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. You were followers you were nobodies. You did what the powers bid you to do. That's death. You have no real life in you. Real life is not being mastered by a tyrant, but you were mastered by death. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. With Christ? Yeah. Christ was brought out. He was dead. He was brought out of the grave. And Paul's saying, you too are being brought back to life. Easter is about our life with Christ's life. 
He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our old self didn't just die with Jesus on the cross, and our new life didn't just rise with Jesus in his resurrection, but our new calling was granted to us when we ascended with him to the seat in heaven, the throne of God. What Paul is saying here is blowing our imaginations about what it means to be a Christian today. Easter is not just, yay, I won't die after I die. That is good news. But Easter is, whoa. Jesus is the Christ. And he has called me to sit with him. Partnership over his kingdom. What in the world could be more exciting than partnering with the king of kings over the kingdom that will not end, that exceeds every boundary and language and tribe and people and race on this planet. Why did he do this? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay. Grace. What does grace mean? Yes, you're right. It's a free gift. It's something God gives. But here's something that Ephesians sheds special light on about grace that I don't want you to miss because I've missed it for years. Look at chapter 4, please. He's going to return to this kingship thing theme in Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Remember, Christ is the name for the risen and ascended sitting on the throne, Jesus. So grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, quoting a psalm, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. That's an image of the kings of the past who, when they would conquer a people, they would ascend their throne with the train of the people they've conquered and with the spoils of war, they would share them with their kingdom if they were a nice king. And Paul is saying, Jesus did this. He conquered the enemy of sin and death who held us in tyrants in in a dictatorship. We were enslaved to it. We were following whatever it told us to do. Jesus sacked that kingdom. He destroyed it. He robbed its power. He took its treasures. And now he's converted them into gifts that he's given us. Gifts that we call grace. And so in verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things and give all of us gifts. That's what grace means. It means free gift. 
Why gifts? Why grace? Why the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus is king. And as part of becoming king, he says, to prove to you that I'm in charge of everything, let me give you the gifts needed to join me in my work. So when chapter 2 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, he then says in verse 10, the reason you have this grace, these gifts, is so that we can do the good works that he created us for and walk in them. What kind of good works, brothers and sisters? The work that the king is doing on his throne. His grace is inviting us to partner with him. By grace you have been saved through faith. Another beautiful word. Faith is when one swears their allegiance to a king. I will be faithful. I will be loyal. I'm giving my allegiance to this crown. And as I commit myself to this kingdom, he gives me the gifts I need to do the work of this king. Ephesians is calling us so much higher than four spiritual laws. Calling us so much higher than you've got a great benefit after you die. These are perfectly wonderful promises. But Ephesians is calling us to rise up. Be the lion God has made you to be in this life. Sit with him on the throne. You are royalty. The king's blood, which he gave to us, which we consume every Sunday, flows in our veins. No one can say you're unworthy. We are sons and daughters by blood in the king. But I fear, I fear that so often we're hiding. We're hakuna matata-ing life. Saying, yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, I've got this past and I've got this thing and I've got this problem and I just don't want to deal with it. So we hide in the trees having a good old time, trying to ignore that there's a larger picture at play. As long as I get the food I need and the play I need, I can die happy. (laughs) Sounds like what a lot of Americans aim for, doesn't it? Simba had to be called out of that. Someone had to wake him up and say, look deeper within. Look at who you are. Your identity is in Christ Well, they would have said in Mufasa. Ours is in Christ. We must learn and realize that he is on a throne. Christ isn't fiddling his fingers or saying, well, you know, let's just have a good time until the end. He's at work, actively at work among the souls of men and women. He's bringing light where there's darkness and he's calling us to help advance the kingdom. He's calling us to help bring the benefits and the gifts and the grace to all people to announce there is a different king. We don't have to follow the fashions and the trends and the things that corporate America tells us makes you successful and the things that the world says you need to have this to look awesome and and this. If you're not doing this, who are you? You're a loser. We don't have to follow that system. That king is already judged. We know his kingdom falls. Christ's kingdom is liberating us with gifts to say, go and live differently. Go and live as I made you. Go and do the tasks that I've given you. My vision is so much bigger than that. (laughs) 
So as I read this, I hear God asking me to rise. Brandon, wherever life is holding you down, you're not rising. As Jesus comes out of the grave, as he called Lazarus out of the grave, and as he calls Lucinda and Steve and Linda and Brandon out of the grave, he's asking us to rule and reign with him. Yet, yet I let, keyword let, I let life hold me down. I let people's criticism, their opinions, their values, I let those things hold me down. I let my limitations hold me down, my circumstances, the, the thing that I wish I had but don't have. I'll do that when the help comes. No, I let these things hold me down rather than realizing that through the power of Christ's resurrection and ascension, the very same spirit which raised him from the dead is at work within me and calling me to rise above these circumstances so that I can rule and reign in life with him. Before Paul teaches us this in chapter 2, he prays that we get this in chapter 1. I want you to see it. It is so good. One fifteen. He gave us a list of benefits we have in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is repeated several times in chapter 1. And then he says, so you know, you're in Christ. You're not in you. You're not in the world. You're in Christ, the Messiah, the King of Kings. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that... Why does Paul want us to see? Why is he praying that the eyes of their heart see? They have a spirit of wisdom and revelation? Because he wants them to know three important truths. One, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is no wussy, just keep calling yourself a Christian and that's what life's about. This is, there's bigger hope than that. Let's rule with Jesus. Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Oh, brothers and sisters, the king of the cosmos has an inheritance for us. And it's not a pension package or retirement plan. It is far bigger than that. And third, 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? I want you to know this. I want the eyes of your heart to see this. I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation about this. That you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. The endless, unbounded power toward us who believe. Now what is this power like? You cannot get higher than this. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Oh, Lord, that's good. This power raises the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
How far is this? How high is this throne? How powerful is this throne? What kind of a kingdom is this? It's like this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, including Caesar who says he rules the world. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. See what's happening here? He's in charge of all things and at the very center of this, his servant in the court is the church. That's you and me. Which, 23, is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, the reign of Christ over the cosmos is being expressed in his church. Then he tells us, okay, so that you see, you were dead and now you're raised up to that throne. That throne, Paul brings up one more time at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 10. You'll notice a lot of similar phrases. Finally, this is basically what he's going to say, I want you to rise to your position in Christ. Finally, be strong in the Lord, that's your king, and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, that defeated kingdom that he robbed the power of and gave to us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and over the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, Those are all the places that Paul just told us his throne is over. He's telling us to go into these places that he is using as a footstool and saying, go and I've given you power just to mop up. Bring my rule, bring my reign to the people next door. Shed light on the darkness and liberate the slaves and the captives. But I can't do it. You don't know my past. Were you blamed for killing your dad? Most of us probably don't have it that bad. I think you can do it. Some of us, it's worse than that. You, I killed my dad. I did kill him. Okay. I didn't hear Jesus say, Father, forgive everyone except the one who killed his dad, for they know not what they do. The cross said it all. All pasts. Presents, futures, all mistakes are wiped clean. There's no more hukunu matata to hold us down. There's no more jungle to hide in. There are no more trees and fig leaves to wrap ourselves in unless you want to live in death. I've cleaned it all. And I have been raised and I have ascended and I am at the highest throne. And the cosmos props my feet up. So we're asked to go and engage in that because there's no way we can lose. So um, I'm going to ask that we learn this Easter 
I mean, look, I've done all kinds of Easter messages at this point in my life. I know I still need 20 years to learn how to say Easter right, right? Somebody said I'll get it eventually. I'll get it. But I've, I've taught enough Easter messages. Um, I was Professor Rowell last year. Some of you might remember Professor Rowell. Um, uh, and I've done the apologetic ones where you give proof that the resurrection is a fact. Um, but this year I was really, really, really deeply struck by the fact of, yeah, I know the resurrection is real, but how does that change me? What do I do with it? And God is asking me, and I pray you hear him asking you too, what do you do with the resurrection? You do this. You practice it. You practice it. Every day I have a hundred excuses to lie around and die. I choose in the power and grace given to me by God through his son, the king of the cosmos, to rise up, to practice the resurrection power, which Paul said is working in believers and in the church. I have that at my disposal. It's wild to believe. It's wild to think. We get better at it as we try. We begin to learn the less that I get in the way and let the Holy Spirit it's true. There's no greater gift a king can bestow, can bestow than his own power within his own people. No king ever gives their people that much power. Why? They don't want the people to rise up and to throne them. Our king has already been risen up against. He was already nailed to a cross. He's got nothing to lose. He says, my people, I know you're all sorry. I'm going to trust you with my own power and I know you're not going to throw me off. You're going to expand the kingdom. You're going to bring every tribe and tongue and nation and language and culture and race into this kingdom. I think we are the greatest hindrances to ourselves participating in our king's work. He has delivered us from that, that passive, passivity. There's always that one word that it seems every night I can't say. Um, passiveness that word? Passivity. It's right up there with femininism. I'm not sure if I even said that one right. Uh, <laughs> he delivered us from that passiveness. I'm not going to try it again. Passiveness in which we were dead and we were following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, following every cultural suggestion and trend, following our neighbor, following those who are cool, following whatever made us feel like we were important. We can keep going that way, but the beautiful thing about Christ is that he said, I've broken that power. Death has ruled over us because we haven't met anyone who is more powerful until Jesus. And he showed us. I absorbed all of death's power when I let it give me its fullest shot and I took it. Death emptied all of its power on Christ and he absorbed it and then said, now that I have it, let me give it in the proper way to my people. Death is emptied. It's all been poured into Christ and now he's pouring it out through his spirit and through grace and through gifts to us. So if, if death and, and, and I have no purpose in life and I don't want to do anything, if that is happening, you're letting it, you're giving it the power that Christ gave you, which is just reversing the entire gospel. We've been given power over. 
we, we need to encourage one another to continue to choose, to get up, to practice resurrection, and to go take one more step like God promised his people in Joshua. Wherever your foot touches, I've already given you that land. And so, the question is, will you rise with the lion of the tribe of Judah? Judah. 